0: Welcome to McKnight's Long-Term Care Newsmakers Podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders.
1: Hi, I'm McKnight's Long-Term Care News Senior Editor, Kim Marcellus. It's been nearly three years since the start of the COVID pandemic and the federal government's decision to trigger the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, or PREP Act, under the public health emergency. Today, my guests are Drew Graham, partner and healthcare practice founder at Hall Booth Smith, and Tara Clayton, senior vice president at risk management firm Marsh McLennan. They're going to give us a COVID liability update as we head into 2023. Welcome to both of you. Well, thank you for having us.
0: Hi, thanks for having
1: us. So let's start with kind of a look back. Drew, we last tackled this subject in May. And since then, there has been a lot of activity around federal prep protections and other liability shields that exist. Can you give us a lay of the land as to what we know and what we may still be waiting to see when it comes to how well these measures are providing that immunity from COVID-related claims?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You guys have done a fantastic job of covering this over the last, I guess, almost three years. I think really as strange as it seems, after all we've been through, it's too early to tell really how certainly on the side of the PREP Act, uh, the declaration is ultimately going to work out. I mean, these are, as you know, hugely complex policy issues. There's an unprecedented impact on the system. And this litigation that we're seeing now, um, both interpreting the prep declaration for COVID and, and state immunity orders is just part of, you know, the process that we use in, in our country to to resolve these issues and maybe make it better for the next time. So I, in terms of a grade of how has it worked, I you know, I, I think it's a solid B minus, but we're kind of at the midterm at the moment. Uh, and I know that seems strange to some of your, the people that may hear this, but it is a slow moving process.
0: Terry, did you want to weigh in there also? No, I mean, I think Drew... I think you summarized the current status, you know, pretty well. Um, I, it feels like we've kind of been saying the same message now for for quite some time. But, you know, the claim development and the, the defense arguments with it, waiting on courts and appellate courts to, to make rulings and decisions, it just takes a lot of time. Um, and we're still kind of seeing a lot of that play out.
2: I'll add that I think one thing that we certainly have seen is that the courts, uh, both state and federal, are working, you know, very, very hard to get this right. It's a, certainly as it relates to the PREP Act uh, jurisdictional questions, uh, whether it's a state or federal court uh Decision. I think we see just, you know, remarkable work and diligence in getting these issues resolved. So I think there's good news there. In terms of pending and what's going on, just the super high level, there are appeals pending in the second, third, sixth, eighth. Ninth and 11th circuits. So there's a lot going on uh, in those courts uh, around uh, federal jurisdictional questions for the most part. And then really too many state courts to really talk about many, many appeals going on in those courts. Uh, and maybe a little bit later, we can talk about some some outcomes. But uh, main messaging is a lot of people are working very hard to to, to try to resolve this and guide us for the next time.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Tara mentioned appellate courts, and of course, there's no higher court than the Supreme Court. There was a decision in November in the Saldana versus Glenhaven Health Care case. Um, basically, the, the court declined to take that case up, if I recall co- correctly. Uh, Tara, can you talk a little bit about the precedent or influence that that's having on cases that are in lower federal courts right now?
0: Yeah, so that was an appeal or it was a request for a writ uh, to hear the case out of the Ninth Circuit. By the, the nursing home defendant in that case, and as you said, essentially the United States Supreme Court, the the highest court in the land, um, made the decision not to take the writ. They denied hearing it. So as far as precedent, I, you know, and definitely, Drew, if if you disagree, please please share that. But I, I wouldn't say it sets a precedent because really, all the court said is, you know, this isn't something for that the court's willing to take up and and hear at this point in time, leaving it to the appellate courts. Um, and the the district courts to continue making the decisions on the issues that were presented. So I kind of view the the current precedent or the current case law to be status quo in that, you know, we've had a couple of decisions come out of the Ninth Circuit, obviously the Saldana decision itself coming out. There's another case, the Garcia, that the Ninth Circuit recently remanded back to the district court to reconsider the Garcia opinion in light of the Saldana case, as well as a couple of their components related to diversity. But so I, I wouldn't say it changes the landscape. It, what it's done is it's, it's left open the question and kind of left this difference amongst the circuits or even sometimes within the circuits as to, or the districts as to how the PREP Act, um, when and how it should apply in these particular cases. Yeah. And, and you
1: mentioned the question, I just wanna clarify, is, is one of the major questions still venue, which, which courts these cases should be in?
2: Yeah, uh, I'll address that. Yes, I think that continues to be the the major issue. Uh, And it really goes back to the uh, initial drafting of the PREP Act uh, and this declaration. Um, So yeah, I think that's going to continue to be an issue and whether the fix uh, is ultimately uh, made by the courts and the interpretation of the uh, of the act, or if there's a legislative change to the way the act's drafted. I mean, something that Tara and I were talking about the other day, I think is important to recognize is uh, the, there have been additional PrEP Act declarations uh, unrelated to the COVID pandemic. So the PrEP Act has been used since the pandemic. Uh, in this instance, it was uh, for the the monkeypox virus and that um Declaration is in effect till 2032 and provides similar immunities to to what happened with the PREP Act. So the tool is still being used. I think there's a lot of uh, stakeholders and state federal agencies, all sorts of people that are really invested in making sure that, you know, that the, the PREP Act evolves and remains a vital part of the preparedness response. Um, but, you know, I think to Tara's point, the, the, the Supreme Court's decision is not not a decision of we're never going to do this it's just we're not going to do it right now hopefully so mm-hmm.
1: so drew take us down a level and let's talk about what's happening uh, in some of the states uh, i know that some of the local protections for nursing homes and other health care providers are either expiring or in some states they were actually reversed what's been the impact and, and have you seen more cases at the state level since that started happening
2: uh, I don't think we've seen more cases at the state level with some minor exceptions, uh, the numbers. and Terry, you may have a little bit more insight into to numbers specifically, but I think they've been relatively static. Um, the state courts, however, much like the federal courts, are faced with this with interpreting, you know two, Uh, bodies of law, two acts, basically. So the state court does have to, in many instances, interpret the PREP Act, uh, the federal legislation to determine whether it preempts the state law. And then in many, many cases, they have their own immunity. So uh, again, a lot of courts working very hard. We've seen, you know, some states, for example, have uh, issued you know, um, opinions upholding the immunity, New Jersey, Nevada, Kentucky, Ohio, uh, Connecticut. We've seen some activity in Indiana, Kansas, uh, good opinions out of Georgia. This is all very state, all very case by case, but certainly, you know, we see that kind of activity, uh, on the other side, you know, other States for a variety of reasons, both interpreting the prep acts, the federal law and then their own state law have decided against the litigants in particular, um, COVID related cases. We've seen, we've really seen both in New York State, for example. Different courts have interpreted it almost exactly uh, Mm -hmm. uh, the opposite of each other, unfortunately. Um, You know, Illinois, um, Pennsylvania, uh, we've seen some opinions where they just didn't find it applied to the facts they were presented with. So, again, a lot of activity. I think listeners that are in a particular state, um, you know, if their investment in that state is significant, then reach out to. Um, follow McKnight certainly first of all and reach out to uh to your council or others. There's you know, there's quite a few people tracking this and and can share state based developments easily. <laughs>
1: So I wanna talk more broadly then again uh, at the national level because everyone's kind of waiting to see what happens with the expiration of the public health emergency. Can you talk about the bearing of that expiration on COVID liability cases, PrEP Act in particular, and whether you guys think a, you know providers should anticipate a possible uptick after that expiration?
2: I mean, I think it's possible that um, after the expiration of the PHE, we could see an uptick in, um, COVID cases, although as we get farther from the beginning of the pandemic and and more toward a less restrictive environment, many of the new cases that that are the uh, providers are seeing are combinations uh, of both COVID infection could be in there, but they are also, unfortunately, in some instances, just general concerns about quality of care and more typical um, cases that we would have seen before the pandemic. So as we get farther away, it's harder to distinguish uh, what's the result of the COVID pandemic and, and what is you know more routine that we would have seen over the years?
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, we, we're, we've already started seeing a, a big focus, I think, um, of the suits coming in, focusing more not on the COVID aspect itself. I mean, even a number of claims where clearly the, the cause of death was related to COVID, that's not even being pled as an allegation in the complaint the focus has been more around just typical general negligence claims that you would have seen pled before but it's connected to that kind of environment that was in place as a result of the pandemic. So what I would recommend is you know if you have a claim come in make sure that you're working closely with your counsel to to educate your, your, your counsel on the environment that was, taking, that was going on during the time period of the claim, because just because COVID wasn't pled doesn't mean that there may not be some type of state immunity or even PREP Act type protection that needs to be pled or looked into, especially before the expirations take place.
1: So that can still be a, a vigorous defense if you have those elements in play.
0: Yeah, I, kind of more stressing to your point of the expirations, what's the impact going to be? We need to make sure that we're utilizing the available defenses while we still have it.
1: Okay, so wanna transition there and, and go a little further with that thought. If the PHA, I guess I should say, when the PHGM prep protections go away, what will be the new standard for providers? Like what are the must-dos to one, avoid lawsuits and two, defend against the ones that we know will be brought inevitably?
0: Yeah, so I think tackling first the what to do to avoid. I know a lot of us have talked about we've got, you know, this was an unprecedented pandemic, an unprecedented challenge that providers and the country as a whole experienced. We've gone through a pandemic now, um, so we're not going to have that defense of this was unprecedented, we didn't know to expect this. We have to take those lessons that we learned related to PPE, to infection control processes and procedures, um, you know, staffing plans, how we're working with other healthcare providers in the community to meet needs during some type of future pandemic pandemic that is likely to happen at any point in time. Um, So, you know, the recommendation is making sure that you, you have learned from the challenges that you experienced during the pandemic, that you have new and updated infection control processes in place, you have new procedures in place. The other thing too is revisit the policy and procedures that you changed during the pandemic as you're coming out or as you're um, evolving to move forward post pandemic with new processes, making sure those policies are updated to reflect what you're actually doing. Um, One of the things that we frequently see in lawsuits allegations that the provider didn't follow their own processes and their own policy and procedures. And we know there was a lot of constant changing of policies and processes because we were having to react in real time to new guidances coming out, um, different things happening in the building because of what the pandemic had caused. So making sure you take time to step back and audit and make sure that your, your documentation accurately reflects what is going on and what's being carried out. In the community, Drew, I don't know if you wanted to add to that piece before we talk about the other part.
2: No, I no, I absolutely agree with what you've said. I think your comments about the policies and procedures and following those and 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 the experience that we've had is critical. I would add to that you know we have seen uh, as defense counsel interacting with litigants and in some of these cases, the importance of communication has really made the difference um, when we talk to to people who, Uh, have sought counsel and and ultimately filed lawsuits relating to the events that we're talking about here, we do hear sometimes that communication would have made a tremendous difference. And so uh, the work that the provider community did during the pandemic was remarkable. I think we'll you know, learn from that for years to come. But if there's one thing that seems to make a huge difference in in many instances, at least the ones we've seen, uh, you can't over communicate about what's going on, uh, and families uh, really live by that information, and it makes a huge difference in litigation trends later.
0: Yeah, and I'll piggyback off of that to go into the next part of the question, but you know, we always talk about from a risk management standpoint, to me, communication is one of those probably top three things that when you're talking about how to avoid any type of lawsuit, so not just specific to COVID, communication is critical. And it's communication not just with residents and residents and family, but also with associates that are working in the community. And to Drew's point, I think one of the, to me, one of the silver linings that I saw through the pandemic was just how, uh, how well, we excelled as an industry in communicating constantly with family members, with visitors, with residents about what was going on, with associates about what was going on, what our plan was in responding to the pandemic. And I do made, think that made a significant difference in the claimed picture that we're seeing right now as it relates specifically to COVID. So for a takeaway, again, not just with your policy and procedures, but uh, you know, keeping that communication um, chain and communication processes that were established to address COVID, tweaking that and adding that into your overall risk management plan, I think going forward, um, is a critical uh, tool to have in your claim mitigation toolbox. With that, you know, talking about how to defend claims, um, you know, even COVID claims that are inevitable to be brought. Um, and as we're looking at the the pandemic declaration going away, those claims that could come after the, the, the declaration ends, not only the communication, but when you do communication, I would say documentation is probably one of those other top three tools to have in your toolkit. Yeah. To help defend, um, and I know Drew, you'll have um, quite a bit to add on this piece too, from a from an attorney litigation perspective. But it, I think w- we we see a great job of having communication and doing the right thing, um, putting in interventions, you know, addressing the infection control processes. The issue comes into play. We have to be able to support, have to have evidence to show what we did. We have to tell, be able to tell our story. Um, in these claims when lawsuits get brought to be able to tell the story to the judge and the jury or if you're in arbitration to the arbiter. Um, So that's where that documentation, not just your policy and procedures, but documenting the communications that you're having, documenting the interventions or documenting in the the resident chart things that the touch points that you have with the resident is really critical in helping to defend um, against these claims that are inevitable.
2: You know, I think uh, Tara's done a, fantastic job of explaining it. at the end of the day what juries i think ultimately want to know about these cases in order to make the decisions that that they very conscientiously make is you know what did you do as, as an operator as a provider why did you do that thing and why was that the right thing to do and i think if we can focus on uh, all the things that tara mentioned but remembering you know why are we doing this why is it reasonable and 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 finding ways to communicate that uh, in in compelling ways is ultimately going to make the biggest difference. Um, The vast majority of encounters with long-term care and senior living operators are you know, satisfying for everybody and don't result in litigation. But when litigation does occur, those are the key points that that jurors need to know. So um, focusing on those ultimately, I think is going to make the big difference.
1: All right. Good words of wisdom for our listeners. and Drew, thank you so much for being here with us today. So much to monitor and McKnight's will be following along with you. For McKnight's, this is Kim Marcellus. Have a great
0: day. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Long-Term Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in long-term care news, visit McKnight's.com.